Fine Degenerate Angels, welcome back to your favorite fast track train to hell. First things first, I want to apologize for my very nasally, more than usual Fran Dreschery voice. I have a cold, not COVID, a cold. I tried to decongest and decompress before recording this. No luck, Jewish sinuses. What can I tell you? Anyway, for anyone who's new to this little underworld that we've built, hello. My name is Allie Weiss. I am a Z-list actor, writer, and professional conversationalist from downtown New York City. And this is Tales of Taboo, my baby, an anonymous confession show that is sourced directly from my listeners, which celebrates the darker and less acknowledged corners of the human experience. As I often say, imagine any topic that would make your conservative aunt blush and clutch her pearls if you brought it up at the dinner table. That's what we talk about here. Do you love it? I love it. So let's get into it. The entire month of December can be really difficult for anyone whose life doesn't fit into the traditional happy mold that is shown in commercials. And this is something that I think about basically starting December 1st, or even before that, like starting around Thanksgiving at the end of November. But at the time that this episode drops, we're going to be like five days away from Christmas. And it just... These are things that I marinate on when I should be doing my homework, you know? Like, what if you have a broken family? Or what if they live in a different country across the world and you can't just drop everything to go and see them? What if a relative just died? What if you're going through a breakup? Or you've been single for years? Or you're at an age or in a location where finding a relationship isn't super easy. There is a big difference between being lonely and just being alone. But because of the repeated idea of the importance of togetherness, the holidays can blur those lines. And even on a more surface level, seeing everyone attend holiday parties can trigger insane FOMO. Like, you might be the kind of person who normally prefers to spend time alone or just with a few close friends, but all of a sudden you can't help but question, am I not cool enough? Do I have enough friends? Do I go to enough parties? And then there are the financial situations. What if you and your family don't have the money to see each other? Or maybe you do, but then there's none left over for presents. I think we all know instinctually that the greatest gifts are the ones that money can't actually buy, but that doesn't make it any easier to swallow the reality of not being able to go on a shopping spree and shower yourself and the ones you love in physical tokens of your appreciation on Christmas morning or through all eight days of Hanukkah. And I say all this because there's one more experience that can seriously complicate the holidays. And this is an experience that gets talked about even less than the ones that I just mentioned, and that's eating disorders. You know, the marketing surrounding the holidays is especially aggressive when it comes to eating and drinking and indulgence and really just excess. There's almost this underlying messaging that if you're not indulging heavily, you're not celebrating correctly. It's the one time of the year where the media gives us permission to not 
be super thin, to let ourselves go, to enjoy without worry, to have another and another and another. And for many people, including myself, this is exciting and comes almost as a relief. But for people who suffer from disordered eating, this generates even more fear surrounding food and ultimately hangs as a dark cloud over what is otherwise supposed to be a joyous time. I've had this episode ready to go for a while, and it it felt the most relevant to save it for now. But, you know, beyond its correlation with the holiday season, eating disorders are also generally just a wildly controversial and misunderstood topic. When asked what first comes to mind about eating disorders, the average person would probably say, <sighs> uh, rich white women obsessed with being skinny or bored rich white women with too much time on their hands or rich bored white women completely disconnected from reality who think being skinny is the most important thing in the world. Now, there's a certain element of truth that beauty standards among white people revolve heavily around being thin. But white women are certainly not the only people to suffer from anorexia and bulimia. And more than that, eating disorders are way more than just striving for a thin appearance. Mostly, it's about control. What was so interesting is that nearly all of our anonymous contributors detailed wanting to exert control over their bodies as a way of grappling with the lack of control they had over other things, like relationships to their families or shitty ways that people treated them or sexual, emotional traumas. Or their eating disorders served as an extension of their pre-existing anxiety as like a funnel for energy that they otherwise struggle to process. And that part is something I really could relate to. Think about it. Life throws so many curveballs at us that we cannot see coming and oftentimes can't fix the damage of, which sucks. However, what we can oversee is all aspects of the food that we eat or the lack of it. And then what comes out of our bodies, you know, via sweat and laxative shit and whatever else. And the single biggest goal that I have in my work is to emphasize that all human suffering is fundamentally the same. Like certain coping mechanisms are more um, accepted than others, which I, I don't really understand. Like, yes, we come from different backgrounds and we grow to have different ways of dealing with said suffering, but those differences should not be judged because, you know, one person wanting to drink away their pain and the other person wanting to starve away their pain, hurt is hurt, pain is pain. It's, it's all the same side of, or I guess I should say different sides of the same coin. That being said, I do feel it's my responsibility to say, seriously, guys, that the diet tactics you hear in today's episode should not be repeated. These are not cute little quick fixes or easy ways to avoid proper self-care and diet and exercise. Our contributors were or are suffering from mental illness. Eating disorders are not glamorous. So as much as I am deeply honored to present this episode today, and, and as much as I'm 
so happy to contribute to normalizing this kind of talk. I do feel as though it's my responsibility to say that these are not things that should be replicated. And with that, enough preaching. Let's get into it, shall we? Written submission number one. My eating disorder started in 2015 when I was going into junior year of high school. I grew up upper middle class in a fairly wealthy community in the Midwest where everyone knew everyone's business and placed a lot of emphasis on academics and achievements. So my eating disorder definitely stems from a greater issue around overall perfection. Growing up, my sister dealt with a myriad of mental health problems. She would be in and out of the psych ward, and I think I was way too young to understand what she was going through. In turn, I learned how to do pretty much everything by myself and was self-sufficient. If I had an issue going on, I would solve it myself and not ask for help. Once I got to college, my eating disorder was a way to have control, since a lot of my classes were very difficult. I was also super scared of gaining the freshman 15. When I got dinner with friends, I would throw up my food right as we got back to a single bathroom stall on the first floor of my dorm. If I were to divide my mental thinking into a pie chart for the day, 90% of it would be about the way I look, food, how many calories I'm burning from a workout, how many calories are in a meal, or if I worked out that day. 10% was about school and how I was doing academically. I bought those calipers used for anthropometric measurements, wow, to see how much visceral fat I had on my body. I also had a Finsta, Allie's note, this is a fake private Instagram, where I would consistently post about how fat I felt and that my legs are a certain size and how I wish they were smaller. I had a boyfriend in my second year of college when I was in the very beginning of recovery. I hadn't thrown up my food for about two months. I opened up to him about it and was honest that I was seeing a therapist and dietitian and how it can sometimes affect my day-to-day life. We dated for four months or so, and then he cheated on me. I later learned that talking to me apparently felt like walking on eggshells because of my eating disorder. He also gaslit me about not drinking at parties, even though I had fun without alcohol. A few days after that breakup, I began to throw up my food again, and that's when a lot of anxiety started getting coupled with my eating disorder. With newer partners, I try to avoid talking about it unless they specifically ask or it comes up in conversation. I also still get nervous about eating around dates. This past year, I went on a date with a guy my friends and I did yoga with. When he suggested lunch, I was super stressed the day before the date happened. None of my friends at college or back at home knew about what I was going through. I didn't even tell my parents because I knew they were dealing with my sister and I didn't want to be a bother or a nuisance. I was very close to my freshman year resident advisor and he was the first person I confided in about it. He referred me to some group therapy options. It was really nice to see other individuals who were going through this because I really thought I was on my own. Plus, it made me recognize which stressors caused which behaviors. The therapist I saw for my second and third year of school specialized in eating disorders and eventually diagnosed me with EDNOS, or eating disorder not otherwise specified. Hearing a professional talk about my diagnosis made me realize it was more serious than I thought. It took a lot of time to rewire the thinking in my brain on learning habits and quieting negative self-talk. 
I'm not talking five months. It was more like three years. So over the years, I've struggled with a couple different eating disorders. The most prominent one in my life, the one that's been around for the longest on and off, has been orthorexia. And that's basically calorie counting or just in general, extremely restrictive eating. The one that's been around for a shorter time, really since only last spring, has been the binge eating disorder. One of the reasons why I feel like I may have fallen into this trap multiple times in my life is because growing up, extreme dieting has been normalized by women in my family. So when I was younger, my mom, she used to be slim. Like before she had a baby, she was slim. And after she had me, she was still pretty small, but eventually she got put on antidepressants and she gained weight on those antidepressants. She did want to lose that weight until she became hyper fixated on becoming her old size. She was actually the whole reason I ever found out, you know, at age five about what slim fast was. And then there was also my aunt. She took over raising me for the later part of my childhood and she was really skinny before she had my cousin. But then after she had my cousin, that really changed her body completely. And she never did quite bounce back. And she was very unhappy. So she tried many of the fad diets, um, the ones that are really, really popular during the, the 2010s. So like Herbalife, juicing, keto, seeing these people in my life, people very close to me going through these things just made the whole need to be skinny or need to be thin to be pretty very prominent in my life. But I was also affected by pop culture, especially in the 2010s, because like that's like the golden age of like YouTube tutorials, not just people, you know, posting weird stuff. But that's when people were like, you know, documenting their heavy contouring, other weird trends where the thigh gaps that people were posting online. There's also the arm wrap test, which you would wrap your arm around your back and then have it come around the opposite side and try to see if you could touch your belly button. And if you got to your belly button or if you even got past it in some crazy way then I guess you were skinny the teenage and preteen version of me just ate that shit up like when I figured out that I had a little bit of a thigh gap and that I had like the hip bone thing and then I had um enough collarbone to put at least a few quarters I became obsessed with trying to improve that because um I just knew myself as being small and that was also just because of my family. You know, I'm first generation here. My family comes from Asia and a lot of Asian cultures really do place a lot of emphasis on being skinny or just, you know, naturally the stature is smaller. And so, you know, when you buy Asian made clothes, like the sizing does run smaller compared to almost any other, you know, standard sizing around the world. So I really do feel like it does change the frame of reference for what people of certain cultures will define as beautiful. Now, since I do have that Asian background in my family, when they pegged me as the one that was skinnier than the other family members, they just called me the pretty one. Like It became ingrained in my identity that I was skinny one in the family, the one who looked good in clothes. It's just something that all the aunties would always tell me all the time. I didn't really care about it until I was a teenager. Um, I don't know what changed, but something did change. But I became pretty preoccupied with maintaining that identity. Um, I just felt the need to be as perfect as I could, as being skinny was just a fortunate start, but it was not enough. So then I really started buying into those, you know, popular body and makeup trends. Now, as a teen, there is no one moment, but my most recent lapse into disordered eating was last spring, right around when COVID shutdowns happened. I just kind of sat down at work one day and became very aware that my favorite work socks were just tight and uncomfortable. Um, so I weighed myself when I got home and looked in the mirror and I just felt disgusted. 
um, mostly because I never noticed the weight that I was gaining before that moment. And um, that was because all of my clothes fit before. It was never really an issue, but now they were starting not to. And I panicked, so I immediately fell back into restrictive eating. So I made a weight loss plan and I stuck to it. Um, my obsession with following whatever weight loss plan I made for myself did stem from my perfectionism. I was always a great student. I got A's with little to no need for study. And so I haven't developed the skill of asking for help without guilt or shame because for most of my life, I never needed help with anything and I did just fine and even excelled at sometimes. But that plan was very, very, very restrictive. Um, you know, every day I eat 800 to 1200 calories a day, depending on how terrible I'm feeling about my body. I downloaded the MyFitnessPal app and I would obsessively, and I still do, you know, very regularly track my meals and exercise on there. Um, and for the longest time, going over my self-imposed calorie limit by even a few calories would bring me into a panic and tears sometimes. In the last several months, I've not been doing as well following this plan because it's not sustainable, and I do know that. Um, I stopped exercising on, the, on my machines when I moved apartments because my new space has way less floor space, and it's a hassle moving everything around in order to unfold them and use them. Um, I still do heavily restrict during breakfast and lunch, but I often struggle with binge eating at dinner time now because I just get so fucking hungry after starving all day. And so because of that, my dinner is starting getting more bigger over time and now consists of... Um, mostly unhealthy food, um, just because I just get so sad and I want to eat good food or food that makes me feel better. Um, and so because of that, I have gained back the weight that I lost during this whole ordeal. And part of me feels like I'm at square one. In general, I do feel ashamed of my lapse and go out of my way to keep it a secret and not let anybody know. Sometimes I'll straight up lie about eating a delicious meal after coming back from lunch at work just because it's easier. It also has affected me socially um, because during COVID, one of the few things there is to do besides outdoorsy activities is, you know, going out to eat or um, getting takeout and like bringing home and eating with people. But I still feel so uncomfortable eating around anybody and the stress I feel when I'm go over, going over menus um, and trying to find safe foods while trying to appear outwardly calm is just exhausting. If we do get takeout and say eat at my place, I'll literally go to the store before we hang out and buy a few normal things to put in my fridge so that I look like I eat normal food, you know, just in case they go in my fridge or whatever. At this point, I never really offer to hang out with my friends in person and decline invitations more than I accept them. Um, and I can tell some of my friends have noticed me asserting more distance and um, I haven't been forthright about telling them why. And so I think that some of them are getting kind of hurt. I would say that my eating disorder would be classified as Eidnos, which is like eating disorder not others not otherwise specified, um, which I think honestly a majority of women have. Mine looked a lot like anorexia and orthorexia at points, but at other times I did struggle with pretty bad binge eating. It's been about four years since it first started. It started right after my freshman year of college. The reasons behind it, I would say that there's three primary ones that I would point to. My older sister, she's four years older, also struggled with a very severe case of anorexia. She still struggles with it while I was abroad in France. She was hospitalized and then put into treatment for almost a year following that. Basically, she she weighed about like 85 pounds and was pretty close to having a colostomy bag for the rest of her life. So that was obviously pretty traumatic. My sister, she has always kind of struggled with issues like self-harm, um, mental illness, drug abuse, abusive relationships. 
and I kind of had to take care of myself and be pretty independent because of that. Like the, the capacity that my parents to give me attention and like the affection that I needed, um, was just diminished because my sister was pretty much in crisis, um, for almost my entire like childhood and adolescence. Losing weight, something that comes along with that is people, they give you a lot of attention. They like, they want to know what you do. They want to compliment you. They fill those buckets that I didn't really get filled a lot. And it was super gratifying um, to the point where it was hard to want to stop because I felt like it was a never ending pit of like what I, what I could become. Another reason I would say is I'm like a taller, I'm not going to say like super curvy, but I have wider hips and like a slimmer waist. And I've looked basically like a grown woman since the time I was, I want to say 13. And as a result of that, I have been very much sexualized and objectified for my entire life. It led to some weird like issues revolving around my body where I was tired of being sexualized and I, I wanted to not be seen as an object, but rather to like be taken of, which also care of, which also goes back to that like childhood, like need to be taken care of. When I lost a lot of weight, I also noticed that men stopped treating me as much of, as like an object and something of their sexual desire. And they started seeing me more as like a person. I don't know if that's because I was obviously ill. My eating disorder like unfolded over time, as many people do. Mine started off as like, I thought I was going to lose weight in a healthy way. The point where it started to really devolve was when I began to count calories. Yet another kind of like childhood wound that my eating disorder like helped me with. Not helped because, you know, obviously eating disorders don't help with anything, but my household was pretty chaotic. Like I didn't feel out of control, in control a lot of the time. In a number of ways, I have like learned to control my life through being like obsessive with my grades, being obsessive with like basically everything and eating became like a new way for me to do that. I would measure every meal. I think I started with probably like 1400. And as time went on, like I just kept wanting to lose more and more. And I kept being like, oh, this marker, this is when I'll be satisfied. And it, and it never was enough. At my lowest point, I was eating about like 600 calories a day. And I would also go to the gym six times a week for like an hour and a half each time doing like sprints. My way of like getting through the day was drinking insane amounts of water because I was always hungry. You know, I was like quote unquote healthy. Like being a vegan was a great excuse for me to not eat a majority of the foods that other people ate and to avoid things without having to talk about it. At the beginning, it didn't really get in the way of my relationships because people just thought I was losing weight. But over time, it definitely cost me a lot of friendships like my junior year when it was probably at its peak definitely at its peak I lived with a roommate and after we stopped living together she just uh, never spoke to me again and basically told me it was really hard to like look at my Instagram and that it was like just hard for her um another friend from home I'm like very deeply ashamed of this but I made her like a quote-unquote meal plan um it wasn't, you know, the, the extent of what I was doing, but it definitely had really unhealthy behaviors that I should not have been 
putting on anybody else. I knew I had one, but I felt like I was still in control of it. And I was so self-deluded to think that like I could actually give other people advice on my social media, which is definitely one of my greatest regrets to this day. And one of the reasons why I still hesitate to post anything um, serious <laughs> or like, yeah, of substance on my social media, because I am really regret that deeply. I want to start out by saying that I am in recovery for alcoholism and addiction. And I think that no matter what the addiction is, it's kind of all the same underlying cause of me not being comfortable in my own skin. I uh, was born into a family of dysfunction and my mother ended up passing away when I was eight years old. So I got moved around a bit and finally ended up at 12 years old with my aunt. My aunt and my mother were both like pretty overweight and single. And I just remember thinking like if you were fat or like overweight, then you're undesirable. And, um, you know, you're probably going to end up alone or divorced or whatever. So, um, at that time around 12 or 13 years old with all of the like unresolved trauma of my childhood and all the death I witnessed and experienced and just the stuff with growing up with an addict as a parent, um, I did not know it, but I was coping with eating because it was kind of the only thing I saw for my aunt. And that was like the only thing I had in my toolkit of for coping was just to eat to make myself feel better. When I was about, I don't know, 16 years old, I was in summer school and I caught mono. I had no idea what mono was at the time, but I remember that whole summer I was pretty much like in bed, um, or I was like in the restroom throwing up while like peeing out of my ass at the same time. I couldn't keep anything down. I was throwing up any kind of crackers or soup or whatever I put in my system. It was just coming out immediately. So I got back to school and everyone is just so shocked at my transformation. And uh, they didn't know that I just had like a very depressing experience when everyone's just like, oh my God, you look amazing. Uh, what have you been doing? Like, what are your secrets? And uh, so from that, I was just a little confused and, uh, but I loved the attention. And I was like, okay, well, I was fat before and no one liked me. So now that I'm skinny, I have all this attention and it's a good thing. So I need to keep being skinny. So I think from that day on, um, I pretty much, was full on bulimic. Um, I remember like Googling bulimia tips and, um, all sorts of things to like, you know, learn more and do it better and be more effective with it. And there are actually forums out there with, uh, information on how to be a better bulimic, which is very, very fucked up. Um, but at the time it was useful. So Going on, I went, ended up in rehab at 18 for drinking. And from that experience, I learned that the underlying causes of all this addiction was me having this like huge void in my life that um, a higher power could only fill. And um, I was trying to fill it with self-destructive things to make myself feel better. Whether my drinking would flare up or not, the bulimia had been consistent for the last 12 to 15 years. And I just always thought I looked amazing, <laughs> even though I was like real thin. But I would wear the baggy clothes. I would cover my body. Um, 
I was always so, so deeply insecure. Um, and I like needed the validation of others to feel good. The thing with bulimia for me was I can abstain from alcohol and drugs, but I cannot abstain from eating. Like that is a thing that has to be done in order to survive. So struggling with addiction, whether I'm in a 12 step program or not, has been very, very difficult. Through working these 12 steps, I have found relief that I didn't know was possible. Whether I'm as skinny as I want to be, I can still be completely miserable. So it doesn't matter what I look like on the outside. The problem with me is my insides and in my head and what I tell myself. So the process now for me is on a day-to-day doing the things I know I need to do of eating a like nutrient-dense diet. So therefore, I'm not lacking anything and needing having this need to binge on whatever it is I'm depriving myself of. I have to connect with a power greater than myself. I have to. If I stray away from that, then I start relying on human things that never fill this void. Um, and then it starts this deep spiral again, where I feel like the only thing I can control is what's going in my body. And that has never been the case. It has always controlled me. I used my eating disorder as a means of control, which is for a lot of people. I also liked that I was getting attention for being really thin. People call me the thin girl. And that was my identity. And I liked that attention. So I was like, I'm going to make sure I stay thin so that they can notice me. On the psychology side of the eating disorder, I have a couple different mental health diagnoses, but I think my social anxiety is a really big factor. Um, The voice of anorexia can be very obsessive. And before people started commenting on my body, I didn't really have an issue with it. So when people would start to put their hands on my wrist, around my waist and make comments, oh, your waist is so small, your wrist is so tiny, I became obsessed with their comments. And as a kid, it's really dangerous that eating disorders can reorganize how you think about things in your, chemically in your brain. I was training my brain to like the satisfaction, even though I was basically getting bullied. Um, I took control in liking that attention. And, or like the pain, if you're really hungry, it starts to hurt. That got twisted into being a chemical reward in my brain, whatever serotonin, whatever it is, like my brain likes that. So now, since I've relapsed, the feeling of an empty stomach, I'm like, oh, I forgot to eat dinner. My brain's like, are you going to go eat? Because it likes that feeling. And I think one of the big things with eating disorders that's hard to understand from the outside is it's very confusing. There's a lot and it's complicated because even now I relapsed about five months ago. The voice of the disease is still persistent and obsessive and confusing and irrational, but the motivation, if if you want to call it that, the reasoning behind restricting is completely the opposite. Um, I lost a lot of weight, or I lost weight in the last year due to some stress and other things, and with working with my therapist of like, why do I want to make the effort to gain the weight, or do why do I want to stay the same, it was a shockingly long list, rational or otherwise, of reasons to for one or the other. So that's completely contradictory to what I would say is a young 12-year-old of why I was restricting. It makes you question, like, if I was wanting control of my body as a young kid, now the voice has control. The disease has control because I'm making completely irrational decisions. And I know I am. And it's just shocking that I can't say, no, I'm going to do whatever that's healthy because the disease has the control. So in terms of 
the day-to-day of my eating disorder. I don't count calories. Um, I don't really have like an eating plan. I wouldn't be able to handle that. I would spiral for sure. So in like as middle school at the worst of it, I would eat like a granola bar a day. Um, I would have to go to the nurse because I'd get dizzy. Um, but as an adult now, I usually have coffee for breakfast. I don't eat lunch. Um, I usually have dinner, but I mean, I don't count calories. So I know that's really low of what I'm supposed to be having, but my body just isn't used to being hungry. <laughs> I don't get hungry very often. And so I don't think about food. It's such a stressful topic for me. And honestly, I'm really envious of people who are like foodies because I love to be excited about it. I love to eat and be able to eat and have the space in my body and be hungry enough for all the food I want to eat, but I can't. And then it's disappointing. So it's very complicated. Um, I think a recent example is like I was out to dinner with coworkers and I was so stressed the whole time because I was like, I need to eat enough appetizers, so I, but not too much. I want to look respectful, but I don't want to leave my entree. So I have to have enough space to finish my entree. And I was like obsessing over it and like wondering if they were noticing. But at the same time, I was like, I want them to notice I'm struggling and ask. It's so twisted and strange. And it was a very stressful evening. So it affects me day to day. I think when I'm like in my work from home hole, I don't notice it as much and I, cause I can be lazy, but without with other people, the judgment of if I'm restricting or not is at the forefront. In terms of weight specifically, I don't weigh myself and I'm not allowed to. When I'm at the doctor's office, I usually say I don't want to see my weight and they respect that. But it's really tricky because with the body dysmorphia, I didn't realize like in the last year with my relapse, I didn't realize I'd lost 10% of my body weight because I couldn't see it in the mirror. I thought I looked the same and was normal. And so when I moved and got a scale, it shattered me because I didn't realize my circumstance and whatever had happened had taken such a toll on me physically. And that's what really caused me to relapse. Not in that I like want to restrict eating now, but seeing that number and seeing my body in the mirror kind of, I instantly felt ugly and became obsessed with my weight again. And the voice of the disease came back and the cycle continued. And I've convinced myself my size is ugly and unattractive and thin and bad, thin is bad. Even though society thinks that that's an ideal body type, I can't reconcile that. Um, and in terms of like relationships, I had a recent partner in the last year and I was dumbfounded. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish he didn't see me like this. How did he think I was attractive? Because it's not attractive. And all of that was just attaching a number to it. So it's a double-edged sword of wanting to know and being honest and seeing the number on the scale and knowing where I'm at with also completely distorting my perceptions that I've, I've built up. I think sometimes our bodies are the only thing we can control and it's not about vanity. And so fixating on hair or skin, your weight can sometimes be a symptom, is often a symptom of a larger problem. Um, so I just want to hold space for that and recognize that if you're listening to this and you're one of those cases, I totally get it and give yourself some grace and understand that you're worthy of recovery. You are worthy of feeling good about yourself and your body and it's never too late to start healing. I see you and I know it's difficult, so you can do it. I, as a teenager, was about 5'7 and I believe my lowest weight was around 90 pounds. I may have dropped to 88 for a day, um, but I t- 
for a certain amount of time was in the 90s. I was happy being like 94, 95 pounds. Once I had reached that weight, I I thought that that was really um, what my my goal was. Um, I at the time that I was a teenager, Tumblr was a really big thing, and there were these pro Anna pro anorexia pages with these you know pictures of these tiny girls with prominent hip bones and ribs and very long bony frames, and that was the ideal. And I basically looked like that for a short amount of time. And, um, of course I did get the attention of my family. So I never went to rehab or anything like that. Um, I never had to be hospitalized, but I did, um, have my mom bring me to therapy, which I went several times, but I did not engage with the therapist at all. I insisted that, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing I need to talk about. I'm fine. And then I also had to see a dietitian. Um, and when I would go there, I actually had these weights that I took out of a weighted vest. And this is terrible. I would tape them to my legs, like to my thighs and wear really big sweatpants into my weighing appointments. Um, and she probably knew. I guess my brain eventually let me think that over 100 was permissible. Um, as long as I didn't go above 105. I remember that being my cutoff for a while. I had to stay under 105. Um, and then I was pretty much always a size zero, um, like through my teenage years. Now that I'm in my twenties, um, I'm, I'm still on the smaller side, um, but I don't think I'm even underweight anymore. Um, I think I'm at about 123, 125, somewhere around there. I started talking to a boy and I really liked him. And he basically said, you're great. You have a great personality. You're smart. I have so much fun with you, but I can't date you because you're not thin enough or attractive enough for me that triggered my behavior to start restricting calories and exercising, which in general is a good activity. However, it became a compulsion for me. I lost 65 pounds in three months and I counted everything that went into my body. I researched all food, what to avoid. I made sure that I exercised for two to three hours per day and it was completely obsessive. Some people noticed and some friends would say stuff, but I feel like there's such a taboo around like eating disorders or restrictive eating that people shy away from it a ton. And honestly, I was getting so much positive attention. I was not going to stop that. I am an overachiever in life now. I've always done well at work. I've always wanted to succeed. I like to be the best. I never like to let people down. I'm a people pleaser. I am very good to my friends. I try to be there for them for everything and really listen. And I think part of that is because I don't want them to look at me or question anything in my life. I've created this facade of perfection and I don't want anyone to think that anything's wrong. I um, have been suffering with eating disorders um, for over 20 years. I couldn't believe when I was you know, thinking about it that it's been that long. Um, it's hell day to day. Um, I worry about food all the time. I overexercise. I 
you know, going out to dinner, I'll sometimes, you know, read the menus ahead of time and panic because there's not really healthy options. And I don't want to be too obvious that I don't want to eat. Really, no one knows. My parents have questioned a little, but I've just always, uh, you know, said, no, I'm being really healthy or I'm on a kick or this and that. Friends, very few friends have questioned it. Um, I really think, you know, where we are in this world, I think it's great that people are talking more about mental health and depression and feeling isolated, but eating disorders is still a major taboo. People don't want to talk about it. It's an ugly truth that people live with. And I also think that, you know, if you looked at me, I'm five, nine, I'm a size two, but I don't look emaciated. I look, you know, to outside people healthy. I am the Western look of, I guess, attractive. I feel kind of weird saying that because I don't feel like I'm attractive, but um, outside people have told me I'm very attractive that, you know, I think I have very all American features and, I think because I have succeeded in life and I'm successful and I'm married and I look just like I've created this perfect image and perfect package, people don't question it and they don't want to question it. And to be honest, I don't want to talk about it because it means that I am exposing a weakness and that is terrifying for me. I have been to therapy. I have not gone to a rehab. I truthfully can't imagine my life not having some kind of disordered eating, whether it's calorie restriction, over-exercising, starving myself, fasting. I also know the thought of gaining weight or not being considered perfect or attractive by others is scarier to me than restricting my calories or over-exercising for the rest of my life, which I know sounds crazy and is very sad, but I'm just being completely honest. I gained weight very quickly during puberty and I also had no discipline. Um, bulimia felt like an easy reverse and uh, I felt like I cheated life, basically. I learned to do it quickly and in silence, usually in combination with taking a shower or a bath so that my family wouldn't hear and I wouldn't be suspicious that I spent a lot of time in the bathroom. I think that I kind of got the idea from my sister who had bulimia a lot worse than me. And I was actually ironically quite worried about her because I didn't think that she was being smart about it. <laughs> How bizarre that might sound, but it was like a weird family secret and we hardly spoke about it, which always confused me, but it was built on shame for my parents and for us. And the most important thing was that no one could find out. I think she has recovered now. To an extent now with the, when she has children and she realizes that she has to be a, a role model and a healthy mother for her children. But for both of us, we both went to a very high status school in Sweden and the pressure was insane. You had to look exactly like everyone else. And, um, well, we didn't, <laughs> you could say. This was also in combination with me being generally very vain. I felt like I had so much potential to be hot. I had never been popular or seen as attractive growing up. And I think as a young teenage girl, that's all you want. It's kind of crazy to try to explain how badly your mind can spiral and that you don't realize how far it has gone. But 
I would Google things like how much each organ in my body could weigh to then, you know, as well as my skeleton and estimate what my weight in fat would be. I wouldn't weigh myself on days uh, when I hadn't gone to the toilet because I would get angry and lose motivation if my daily weight loss wasn't at least 200 grams. I even wanted to have my appendix removed so that I could weigh less. Not that I would look different, I just wanted to weigh less. I would never take the sugar pills in my birth control chart. (laughs) I also, at one point didn't like to use like moisturizers like body butters because they felt too fatty. I knew that didn't make sense. I knew that was crazy, but it was just, you know, your mind playing tricks on you. If my family went out to dinner, I would say that I had to study or that I had plans. They actually never found out about my eating disorder because I was so sneaky and so smart about it. And my parents worked a lot. One of the times where I It was a little bit of a wake-up call, but not enough to make me stop. It was when I was going to a birthday party in the night. I had starved myself for two days, and I kept no food down, like, from the little I ate. And so the morning of the party, my blood sugar was so low that I could hardly get out of bed. I realized that there was something very wrong with me, um, and that I had to crawl on all four to the kitchen as I was about to faint. And I forced some special case cereal down, um, which I ended throwing up, not because I wanted to, but because my stomach was so sensitive that it physically couldn't keep it down at that point. At my thinnest, I weighed uh, 48 kilos and uh, I'm normally quite curvy. I have very big boobs from my body, but at that weight, they looked like empty bags. And when I was younger, they'd grown quite quickly. And I got some stretch marks, which weren't visible at, you know, normal weight, but it looked like wrinkly, empty bags. And I looked absolutely awful. And I got so depressed because I realized that without surgery, I can never have this flat stomach that I want and a normal looking chest. And I didn't want, you know, any guy to see me naked, but at the same time, You know, being validated for my body was all that I wanted. It sounds so incredibly shallow, but when you're at that age and you feel like your entire value as a human being is in how you look, it is soul crushing. But also when I think back at it, my comparing it to my friends that I know had anorexia, they lost hair, they missed out on their periods. Um, This never happened to me. I think partly because, to be honest, um, bulimics have a harder time keeping the weight off because you keep stretching out your stomach and your appetite is always still there. I also try to play it very smart by eating strategically healthy foods like small portions of protein-based food, um, spirulina drinks that tasted like ass. (laughs) And I also took vitamin supplements so that I wouldn't look so sick on the outside. My recovery was abrupt and slow at the same time in a weird way because I would usually let myself reach around 60 kilos because that's where I would hate my body again and just like have this yo-yo diet life. 
And uh, this went on four years, but it improved with maturing, understanding that I had value in other ways than my body. Um, I'm still very obsessed with how I look and uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about it and staring at myself. But I also know that what I see in the mirror isn't what, I, what, what other people see. And since I was diagnosed with ADHD just a few years ago and uh, on medication and learning about the disorder, I realized that a lot of my issues came from being undiagnosed and not understanding myself, um, why I would act in, in some ways and that it was a means of control. I lacked control of my life. And as mentioned before, I felt like I could never reach my full potential. So being attractive, which is what I wanted, seemed like a way of getting acceptance as like, and, you know, finally being enough. I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 16 years old as a junior in high school. For reference, I am now 20 years old and I'm in college. I am definitely an overachiever. And I always really craved academic validation because I never felt particularly desirable or attractive growing up. I think I overcompensated in a lot of other areas, including school. I've also always struggled with emotional avoidance. And so when my father passed away from cancer in 2017, I projected a lot of feelings of grief onto myself and my own body. It was a very tangible way for me to avoid those emotions. What kind of started as like this innocent attempt at self-improvement manifested into a very unhealthy obsession with wellness. Something I've noticed is that a lot of times kind of an innocent or even well-attended diet or exercise regime can quickly spiral into something that's much more dangerous. My eating disorder got serious very quickly. Um, you know, I don't think it's particularly helpful to emphasize how I looked or to, you know, talk about my physical appearance. Um, but, you know, I really did kind of typify um, prevailing stereotypes of anorexia patients in the media. Um, I suffered from a lot of physical symptoms that I don't think are talked about. You know, I think the media tends to really glamorize eating disorders. Um, what I experienced was not glamorous. I was cold all the time. I had blue toes and fingers. My skin was yellow. I experienced a lot of incontinence, which I don't think is talked about frequently. I lost my period, which is something I'm still, I, I'm, I'm still dealing with the ramifications of that. I lost chunks of hair. My teeth started yellowing. My nails were brittle. And I involuntarily began treatment uh, for my eating disorder because my doctor, as well as my family and friends, were extremely concerned. At this point, I had received a lot of messages from friends and family asking if I was okay. Um, and so I began to participate in weekly therapy sessions. I attended weekly dietitian sessions. I worked on weight restoration the summer before leaving for college. And then during COVID, 
I stopped going to appointments. Um, COVID kind of provided, I, I had been struggling for a little while before COVID, but COVID almost provided this perfect opportunity for me to stop attending appointments. And so I did. <laughs> I suffered a, a pretty severe relapse and then eventually committed myself to a residential program for the month of January, um, January 2020. And I was there for four weeks before I was discharged. Um, so I went through the process of weight restoration for a second time. When I was in the depths of my eating disorder, I completely self-isolated. I was unable to socialize. I was unable to spend time with friends, go out for dinner. I lost a lot of of friendships during that period of time because I was so hyperfixated on food and exercise that I didn't really have the mental capacity to focus on anything else. If I had to offer one piece of advice to someone who's struggling with an eating disorder, I would say it does get better, which sounds so cliche. And it takes time. It really does. You have to trust your body. You have to trust that your body knows what it's doing, that your body is smart, your body is capable, your body is resilient. I'm at a place right now in my recovery I never thought would have been possible. In terms of partners, um, a few months into all of this, I reconnected with the guy who had broken up with me and we started this very casual kind of uh, fragile courtship again. Uh, he reacted worse than any you know, teenage movie villain would be expected to in this situation. He knew what was going on. I told him and he outright told me that he was extremely attracted to, as he deemed it, my new skeletal body. But he quite often withheld sex from me because he said that he didn't want to, you know, quote unquote, reward my behavior. He also told me all the time that I was disgusting, that he found it vile to be around me knowing my constant proximity to vomit. And because my self-esteem was so low at this time. I kind of, in my mind, the two, the two were interlinked for me. Um, I was also hugely depressed during this time. I was, you know, misusing substances and alcohol and I was just a complete mess. It had become very apparent to everyone who knew me. My parents knew that something was up. I was living in a house share situation at this point and then my friends knew. Um, my college had started to notice as well. Eventually I was quite literally dragged up the street to enter a therapy program within my college. I had missed a huge amount of class and semester time and I was coming up to my finals and I struck a deal with the dean of the college that they would write off my absences if I agreed to go to therapy. So I went and it did not help me at all. My competitive nature came out even more in therapy and knowing that I had to be there every week gave me a time frame. So I wanted to look even more unhealthy the next time I saw my therapist. I wanted to have lost even more weight or gotten sick even more times. And honestly, it wasn't until my mother walked in on me throwing up that things really started to change for me. She moved me back home. Um, she brought me to a doctor where I was evaluated and put on a strict meal plan. I was not allowed to exercise. I was not allowed to go anywhere by myself. My parents, you know, stood outside the bathroom while I used it. I was only allowed in the shower for a certain amount of time. I had no privacy, essentially. It was a very hardcore way to recover, but it you know, was the best thing for me at the time. And my mom saved my life 100%. She would sit with me while I eat. And then 
held my hand while I cried and cried and cried for hours after every full meal that I had. Um, she sat with me through panic attacks and listened to every insane thought that I had at the time and just coaxed me through the entire thing. Um, when I eventually was allowed to move back up to my own house, um, the main thing that helped me was, uh, weed. Um, so I would smoke in order to allow myself be relaxed enough to eat and I would get high enough so that I physically couldn't throw up. Um, so yeah, weed is not legal in the country that I live in, but it is very easily accessible and it was a lifesaver to me in terms of recovery. It, it took almost as long as I had the eating disorder, to be honest. It took several years of just fucking hard work, like really fucking hard work. I had been advised by my college and my therapist to enter an inpatient recovery program in order to deal with it, but I refused. I refused outright. I sat my finals um, all while, you know, throwing up 15 times a day. I passed college, I graduated. Um, yeah, I mean, I just worked through it. I went on medication. I started taking Effexor, which is a mood stabilizing drug. And that helped a huge amount, like an truly an insane amount. And, you know, it's funny. I remember being so mad at my doctor at the time because as I was starting to get well, she told me that no one ever truly recovers from an eating disorder. And I thought that this was just the most reductive thing that I could hear amidst my recovery. She said that it was something that would come back to me in times of stress in my life. And, you know, as much as I didn't want to believe her, she was right. Life with a healed eating disorder is a strange thing to describe to someone. It, I no longer have fear around food and I live a healthy lifestyle. I exercise, I go to the gym, I eat when I want to eat. But in times of stress, you know, be that romantic stress or my job is really getting to me, one of the first things that comes to mind, this tiny back tiny voice in the back of my head says, get sick, starve yourself, you know, go eat 16 gallons of ice cream and puke it back up. But I don't do that. Um, you know, I have the tools now to recognize that that is an unhealthy mindset. I know that I am more than my physical appearance. I'm more than my body. That's not all that I have to offer to this world. And I'm able to deal with it. Um, did I funnel my obsessive personality into other things? Yeah. Um, I probably did. You know, after I was recovered, I moved to New York and in New York, I had, I had several blips. I used to get drunk a lot and throw up from the alcohol. But looking back, I think that it was me doing it on purpose in order to still, you know, passively in some way maintain my habit. I'm over it. I am clean from bulimia now for almost three years and it's somewhere that I'm I'm never going to go back to. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I'm I'm not that person anymore. Recovery is so fucking possible and it is so fucking worth it. You do not have to be beholden to a voice in your head telling you that you are not good enough solely because of your body. You can recover from this. You can get over this. And this does not have to be your life forever. There is help. You're stronger than you know, and you can recover. And it will be the best thing that you have ever done. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who identify as neither, my name is Allie Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. If you heard something today that really resonated with you, 
or maybe you heard something that really pissed you the fuck off, contact me. My email is Allie at AllieWeissWorld.com. I'm sorry if you hear motorcycles going off in the background. I have re-recorded this outro five times to accommodate for them. But alas, New York City, you get what you pay for. You want the chaos, you get the chaos. Anyway, you can also DM me at Allie Weiss World on Instagram. However, my DM box tends to get full because of casting. So the fastest way to contact me is always via email. If you are listening to this and you have a spare 30 seconds, please go on iTunes and leave me a rating and a review. I'm not joking. It's the single most helpful thing you could possibly do. I know every podcaster says this, but for me, it's really important because it means that I cannot have to feed you really gross ads. And it means that I cannot do embarrassing things to promote myself and grow this show. If you love me, this is the most helpful thing you can do. And guess what? I love you back. I'm very excited to see and hear from you next week. And until then, be good. Good.